Hello, everybody. Hey, hey, all right. Welcome back to Parsha class. Happy to be here. Um, happy to be here, actually. I am, as you can tell, maybe from my background, I'm in a different setting altogether. I, um, as you know, I finished my my tenure at ECAR, but I'm going to continue to teach this class. So good to see you all again. And because I am um, between gigs, I, uh, I'm, I've retreated into the woods up <laughs> here, out here in my, my family um, has a, a cabin in Mendocino County and that's where I, so Parsha coming to you live from Point Arena, California here. I, I gotta show you this, this is pretty good. This is my, this is my view right now. Not bad, right? Not bad. Okay, so yeah, I'm happy, happy boy. Um, and happy to be doing Parsha with you, I think like, Without the without the weekly parsha, I would just uh, I would just get lost here and I'd just like become a fairy in the woods and leave forever. Um, okay, uh, good to see you here. I wasn't sure if anyone would show up, but here we are again. And um, and the parsha continues. We did miss one parsha. We missed parsha Shmini. It's been uh, Passover for the last two weeks. We took the last two weeks off, and Passover coincided with. Uh, one of our Thursdays and the way that uh, the readings on Passover work, there's no, we read readings for Passover. So there's no Parsha during Passover. And then there was a Parsha that was read last Shabbat, which came right after uh, Passover. And that was Parsha Shmini. So um, we're in Leviticus, I'm just orienting us because it's been a few weeks. We're in the book of Leviticus and we're a few Parshot in, um, Vayikra Tzav Shmini. And now um, we are uh, looking at Parshat Tazria Mitzorah. Um, That's two Parshot, uh, but they probably belong together. Um, sometimes you next week we'll have two Parshot that are kind of smushed together. We sometimes read two in one week and you feel like Achremot and Kadoshim could go together, but they also are quite distinct in many ways. Whereas these two Parshot, Tazria and Mitzorah, really feel like they do belong together. Maybe they were always supposed to be read together because they are the Parshas that deal with in great detail, great <laughs> gory detail with um, this topic that is a big topic in the book of Leviticus, um, the, but we've only gotten a little bit of a taste of it so far, um, which is the topic of purity and impurity. Purity and impurity. I say we got a taste of it so far, and that's almost like a pun because the one place we've seen purity and impurity um, really discussed in full so far in the book of Leviticus is in discussing pure and impure foods. Okay, like the beginning of our of our kosher system is here. Um, in in last week's parsha in parsha Chmini. Now um, th now we come to parsha Tazriyah Matzora. And there are all kinds of, um, it's, it's bodies, 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 all kinds of body issues, bodily fluids, bodily processes. Um, and those things cause impurity. But it turns out that the big force of impurity, the thing that if impurity is, is a concern in, in, in this book, um, and I should say, the main reason that it is a concern in this book is because this book deals with the sacrifices and the holy spaces, and you can't approach the holy spaces if you're in a state of impurity. Okay, that's 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 why we're talking about it. 
And it turns out that the big concern, the big impure thing, the sort of paradigmatic impurity in the in the Torah is tsarat, tsarat, which we um, uh, translate often as leprosy, but everybody agrees that it's, it's not exactly leprosy. It's the best translation we have because it's some kind of skin disease. And it, we, it's a mystery. We don't, we don't totally understand it. And we won't get to the bottom of it today, but we today are going to look at a very, very strange manifestation of it. And that is Sarat of the house. Sarat of the house. Okay, so let's, that's, that's what we're going to look at today. And so let's take a little breath here and say a blessing. And then we'll, uh, we're, we'll take a look at, at, uh, at this very, very strange case of, of what, I, what I sometimes think of as the haunted house. I think Vera put a link to uh, my book in the chat. And in, in my book, I, I write about this, this case, the house, the haunted house um, of, uh, that, that we're going to look at today. But today we're going to take a, a, different, a different kind of look at it. You see Ellie's got the book there. Thanks, Ellie. Okay, uh, let's take, a, let's take a, a blessing break here. Just thanking God for our uh, Torah and our ability to come together, even sitting in the middle of the forest and, and to learn Torah together. Okay. Okay. So let's begin. Um, Sarat of the house. What do I mean by that? Sarat is introduced to us in this uh, week's parsha, and I should say there's a little bit of a. If you're if you were paying close attention, we we got a little bit of a, 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 a just a, a quick mention of it or a tease of it back in Exodus when Moses is asking God for proofs how will they know how will they believe that I am the prophet sent by you one of the it's all, they're almost like little tricks that Mo, one of the things God says you you can do you know one of them is the is will, will end up being the snake into a the staff into a snake but one of the things God says is put your hand inside your shirt and then pull it out and it'll be Sarat, it's a little bit like magic. It's like you feel like, and then he pulls it a rabbit out of his his coat, right? But there's one little brief mention of it there. But now it turns out that it's a major issue, and it's well, how major an issue is it actually? That's one of our questions. It's discussed in full, but we don't. It's not so clear, like how big a deal it was. But this is the way it goes. Um, we start discussing it as a skin disease, a skin condition, though it seems to have come from God, or it seems to be an affliction that you've received, not because you're ill, but because most of the commentators agree this is like a, a punishment or a spiritual uh, problem that's manifested physically. But that's, again, for another class to figure all that out. Point is, there is this sarat, and it's on the body. And then it starts to move. And this is what's really strange about Sarat. It starts to move like we start discussing Sarat of the hair and scalp, Sarat of the beard. And uh, I hope I don't, I'm like, as I feel my own beard here, I'm like in the wilderness and a little less clean than I, do I have Sarat? Um, uh, Sarat of the beard and then, and then Sarat of the clothing. Okay, that's where things start to get 
weird because now it's not just a physical condition. It's like um, it's a thing that can spread and and it can it can be on other things and they can they can cause impurity too. So there's sarat of the of the body, there's sarat of the hair, there's sarat of the clothes. And then we're discussing, discussing various cases. And then um, we get to Parshat Mitzora, which continues to discuss bodily impurities and then suddenly introduces this case of sarat of the house, of the house. Okay, so we're gonna look at this case here and let's just take a look at it first. It's so weird. I notice it every year. Sarat itself is weird, but there's something about this house that really feels um, haunted. It really feels like there's something strange and everybody's freaked out. Nobody knows quite what's going on. So let's first take a look at this case. I'm going to give you a source sheet here and then, um, and then, uh, okay. Okay, so let's take a look at the first case here. And then we're gonna do some comparison through a very particular lens. I have a very particular agenda for us today. We're gonna to take a very uh, distinct look at this case, but let's let's just, let's actually look at the case first. Sarat of the house, here we are. Um, here we are, Parshat Tazuya Metzora towards the end, or that is in Parshat Metzora. Vaidabar Hashem El Moshe Ve'el Aaron Lemor. God spoke to Moses and Aaron, and Aaron's got to know this stuff because it's the impurities. When you enter the land of Canaan that I give you as a possession, and I inflict a plague of tsarat upon a house in the land you possess. And this is one of those things. Is this God will do this? Or if if I do this, it's not so clear. In Hebrew, um, uh, I, 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 you come to the land, vanatati nega tsarat bebeit Eretz achuzatchem, nega tsarat. Nega means plague, and you'll see that word occurs all throughout this passage. Nega, and uh, tsarat. There's the the actual the nature of the plague. Tsarat. Right here it is. Here I'm not going to translate it. Could be leprosy. I think, and they have a complicated translation in Safaria here. It's like an an eruptive affliction. Okay. Okay. Fine. But the plague uh, the the plague language will continue. Um, by the way, the only place we've seen the word plague before is in reference to Pharaoh. Pharaoh is plagued back in the book of Genesis when he kidnaps Sarah, and then Pharaoh uh, receives a, a the plague of, well, the plagues, the ten, the 10 plagues, but usually they're called the makot, like the blows, but there is one place where they're also called plagues. So... We haven't seen a plague actually, a, a nega is the word. We haven't seen that that uh, uh, bef uh, except as a strike against Pharaoh and now suddenly it's on us. And it's in our in, on our bodies and it's in our house. So let's see what that looks like. And I love this line here. The owner of the house shall come and tell the priest. This is part of why we're discussing it is the priest is the one who figures this out. The owner comes and says, um, Kanega near near something like a plague has appeared upon my house. It's like he doesn't even know what it is. It's like what's going? There's something like a plague. What's going on here? And Rashi says, even if it's a scholar, he refrains from saying, "Oh, I know what this is," because it's so strange that there's uncertainty. The priest has to go and check. 
Okay, there's a plague on the house. So let's take a look at the priest checking. So here's what it looks like. The priest shall order the house cleared before the priest enters to examine the plague so that nothing in the house may become impure. And after that, the priest shall enter to examine the house. The priest in ancient Israel was, you know, kind of like a doctor, but also kind of like a radioactive, you know, specialist, like going in and, and investigating if there's toxic energy here. If, when he examines the plague, the plague in the walls of the house is found to consist of greenish or reddish streaks that appear to go deep into the wall. Okay, does this feel haunted yet? The priest shall come out of the house to the entrance of the house and close up the house for seven days. Something in that house. Don't go in that house. On the seventh day, the priest shall return, and if he sees that the plague has spread on the walls of the house, what is going on here? The priest shall order the stones with the plague in them to be pulled out and cast outside the city into an impure place. Here it is in Hebrew, el makom tameh, some impure place outside the city. Get these stones out. Now, there, remember, there, there's, there's some, uh, first, there's some steps here. First, we'll close up the house. Then we see if the plague goes away. This is much like what happens when a person has tzarat. They're quarantined for a week. So too, the house is quarantined for a week. Go back in. Is it still infected, the house? If so, maybe we can just take the stones that are infected out. Okay. If that doesn't work, the house shall be scraped inside all around and the coating that is scraped off shall be dumped outside the city in an impure place. It really does feel like Take it to the dump. Get, take it to the, the toxic waste dump. Um, they shall take other stones and replace those stones with them and take other coating and plaster the house. So seems like it should be okay now. I mean, it's a big thing to, 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 to take someone's house away, but ultimately that's the possibility here. If the plague again breaks out in the house after the stones have been pulled out and after the house has been scraped and replastered, the priest shall come to examine. If the plague has spread in the house, it is tzarat. That's what they were trying to figure out the whole time. Vihine pashahanega babait tsarat. Mimareeti. It is tsarat. It looks like tsarat and it is impure. And the house shall then be torn down, its stones and timber and all the coating on the house um, uh, and taken to an impure place outside the city. Okay, so that's the situation. That's the case that we're looking at today. Sarat breaks out in the house and we try to save the house. Step one, close it off for a week. Step two, rip out the parts of the house that have Sarat in them. Step three, the house has to be completely torn down and, but not just torn down, taken and removed. There's something, um, did, you, did you ever read uh, Lovecraft, HP Lovecraft? There's like, in his stories, there's always like some site that has been like infected there's something that happened there and there's still toxic energy and we think of chernobyl and places like that where there's just it don't go anywhere near it it's still fuming up from the ground if you if you stay in this place you will become impure okay i'm looking i'm seeing in the chat and people coming people suggesting was it mold was it you know um what's going on here what is what is fungus so it's happening okay um, so we could guess. 
Um, we could, there's, there's much to discuss here and the why and what does it mean and what could it have been historically or what does it mean spiritually? Okay, but today I wanna do a very particular thing with you which is to look at the case of the haunted house, of the, of, the, of the plagued house, of the house with the disease, and to compare it to two other cases in the Torah that seem initially to have nothing to do with this. Okay, we're gonna look at two other cases and it turns out that the Talmud links these three cases in a very particular way. Okay, these three K, and we'll, so I'm going to do a little bit of a reveal, but maybe some of you will guess beforehand. The Talmud takes the case of the haunted house, of the plagued house, and links it to two other very important and classic cases in the Torah, but these two are both later on in the book of Deuteronomy, okay? Let me just name them. The case of the Ben Sorer Umore, the case of the rebellious son who is killed by his parents' order. Okay, we'll look at that in a sec. The rebellious son who is so wild that his parents have him killed. Okay, that's, that's quite a case to mention. The rebellious son. And then, in, uh, and if you're feeling a little disturbed by what I just said, don't worry, that's the whole point. The whole point is um, there, these, these two cases that we're, gonna, that we're gonna look at and compare to the plague house are both very disturbing. The other one is the ear han Ir Hanidachat, the condemned city, the city that must be destroyed. And the story there is that if you find a city in your midst, in, 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 the, in the land of Israel, in the, new, in the land of Canaan, where your own people have become idolaters, you know, Vegas or something like that. No offense, Richard, <laughs> you know, but like, uh, um, but you know, there's some city and it's gone astray. Okay. If you can, you have to, you know, check, but if you confirm that that's what, what, that's what uh, the case is, then you have to destroy the city, annihilate it, burn the city down, destroy everybody in it and all their stuff. Okay. <laughs> this is like, I've now mentioned two horrifying um, scenes. So let's just take a breather here. Now, the, as I said, the point is that they're horrifying. The Talmud will soon um, be dealing with exactly that problem. Like, what do we do with these terrible, really? We kill a child who's out of control? My brother was a real wild kid and, uh, <laughs> You know, like the cops would pick him up and he would get in trouble all the time. And he was, he was a wild, he definitely would have been killed by the Torah's law. Like it's crazy, that's this crazy law. And the Iranidachad is also a crazy, what is going on here? Okay, we're gonna get to the Talmud soon. Um, let, me, let, me, let me just read through the, the two cases that I mentioned just so you have the text in our, and then I wanna pause here and just hear if you think, that these three cases have anything in common. Let's just try to identify any commonalities that we see before we take a look at how the Talmud will kind of bring them into one category. Okay, so let's take a look at these two cases. So the case of the Ben Sorer Umore. It seems like, right, like I, we, this is weird enough. And now I'm taking you to all kinds of other weird places. It seems like, what does this have to do with, what are we, why are we talking about this? But you'll soon see 
they are they are linked. Okay. So if a man has a wayward and defiant son, Ben Sorer Umure, rebellious and reckless, wayward, defiant, lots of ways to translate this, but he's a rebel and he's a wild kid. And he doesn't heed his father or mother. Now, here are the languages he doesn't heed his father or mother, but in the Hebrew, it's he doesn't listen to his father's voice, uvakol imo. And he doesn't listen to his mother's voice. Okay, that's we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna keep that literal translation. So let's just this will be important. He doesn't heed his his father. Let's just translate this father's voice or his mother's voice. I'm just I'm uh, this is important. So uh, so let's just let's make sure that we keep that there. Okay, and does not obey them even after they discipline him. Okay, they 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 try to punish him. It doesn't work. He's out of control. He's like crashing cars into, well, he's not crashing cars, but you know what I mean? He's like, he's out of control. His father or mother shall take a hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his town at the public place of his community. And they shall say to the elders of his town, um, uh, this son of ours is loyal and defiant. Uh, there's that same language he does not listen to our voice there's that our voice again he's a glutton and a drunkard thereupon his town's council shall stone him to death and there, and there it is boom all the mem all the people of his city his town's council is a, is a little bit of a fun all the thereupon the people of his city shall stone him to death. And thus you shall sweep out Israel, evil from your midst and all Israel will hear and be afraid. Okay. Okay, that's case one. And that's pretty disturbing. Is this more disturbing? Maybe, maybe this is even more disturbing. This is case two or really case three, right? Case one is the plagued house. Plagued house, rebellious son, and now the condemned city. If you hear it said in one of the towns that your God, Hashem, is giving you to dwell in, that some scoundrels from among you have gone and subverted the inhabitants of their town, and they said, I love this language, then they've said, come, let us worship other gods. Come on, let's do it. Gods who have you, you have never known or experienced. Now, you don't just go and kill them. You, you, you go and you, you investigate and inquire and interrogate thoroughly. Got to make sure. But if it's true, if the fact is established that abhorrent thing was per per perpetrated in your midst, meaning in the land of Canaan, right? Um, put the inhabitants of that town to the sword and put its cattle to the sword. Doom it and all that is in it to destruction. Gather all its spoil into the open square and burn the town and the, all its spoil is an annihilation to Hashem, your God. And it shall remain an everlasting ruin, never to be rebuilt. Let nothing that has been doomed stick to your hand in order that Hashem may turn from a blazing anger and show you compassion. And in compassion, increase you as promised on oath to your fathers, for you will be heeding Hashem, your God, obeying all the divine commandments I am joined upon you this day, doing what is right in the sight of your God. Okay. Okay, apologize. This class requires a lot of kind of gathering information and 
we've almost gathered all the information we need. So let's take a pause here before we go into the Talmud and see the weaving that the Talmud is going to do and do a little weaving ourselves. What do these cases have in common? Is there any, do you notice anything in common? Maybe you already know what's coming. Maybe you you remember this passage in the Talmud. But before we get there, is there is there some reason you would think of either the rebellious son or the condemned city when we um, read the case of the plagued house? So let's take a few um, a few, uh, I see folks have already have something to say. Let's take a few comments. Alexandra. Thank you. I'm, I'm chuckling because I'm, I'm taking this class from my friend's Airbnb. And the reason I am here and have been here for a very long time is because my place is undergoing mold remediation. And right now it looks like your cabin. <laughs> um, and the good news is I get to pick pink colors, but. Wow, they but, say this is um, like Misa Shahaya. Like this is like in, in Yana Dioma, this is like a, a, we're, we're studying the, 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 the topic of the day. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the topic of the last two years. And, and it's surprisingly relevant in that the reason I have to undergo mold remediation this year, as opposed to only having experienced it last year, it's like a tradition now, is because they didn't get it all last year. And so when there was a little leak that wouldn't have caused a major problem had they gotten all the mold, because there was still remaining mold, because they didn't do it thoroughly, it caused the mold to like grow like crazy and spread and expand like crazy. And um, so the idea that it might not be such a problem, something, but if it comes into a space where there already is a problem, there's this um, huge exponentially increasing problem. And the three thing, the link that I found between these three is in each one, you're, you have to destroy something that most people would not want to destroy. So you really have to be very, very, very discerning, very desperate, very um, correct. So you don't want to destroy your house, probably. You probably don't want to destroy your kid. And it was interesting to me that the parents are the ones who have to decide. It's not, it doesn't seem like someone else can just say, hey, they're not listening to their parents. It seemed to me that the parents are the ones who has to say, they're not listening to us. Um, and, and then you have to destroy the spoils. You can't ever use this as like a motivation for money. So there's like a little bit of a ethical um, bumper, like, you, like uh, you're, it's not gonna be, a twisted motivation for wanting the money. I mean, there are possibly other twisted motivations, but you're not going to get rich off of calling them idolaters. Great. Okay. This is brilliant. There's a really, really Thanks. beautiful, beautiful work that Alexandra starts us off with. Exactly right. These three cases seem so different from one another, um, seem to have little to do with one another. When we, when we take a moment of reflection, we can see, Alexander puts it so well, they all require something to be destroyed, something that you wouldn't want to destroy. Your house, your son, a, a, a neighboring town requires something to be destroyed. And there's, so that's very, very good. And there's one other thing that Alexander was starting to say that I, I, want, to, I want to build on, which is that, um, I, I hadn't thought of it this way either. Alexander was starting to say that 
um, in the beginning that that um, problem with mold is that it can spread, is that it's hard to get rid of. And if you leave it, it can spread. And that, after all, is, is also a, a connection that we are worried about explicitly um, in the the well maybe 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 in both cases but the Ben Sorer More case the 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 rebellious son case um what we what what it says is uviarta harami kirbecha you 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 you're trying to root out the wickedness that is within in your community right um and i i i feel like there there's a little like you have to make you have to get this wickedness out lest I, I almost want to finish the sentence, lest it spread, lest it spread. And then, and, and that sounds, you also want to, you want to remove God's wrath from this city, lest, you know, the, the idolatry spread. I, I, you have this feeling like there, that's also a, a worry here is that we're dealing with things that could contaminate, right? The rebellious son brings other hoodlums into his pack or just, you know, spreads destruction, the idolatrous city spreads its, you know, evil idolatry across the land. So, okay, good. And 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 then again, just to repeat Alexandra's um, um, well well articulated link here. And so you have to destroy these things. You wouldn't want to, but you have to. Okay, good connection. Yeah, El. I'm seeing this as behaviors in addition to relationships that are toxic and become cancerous. So in this example of the house, you, you see if you can cut out the toxic part, the toxic influence. And it's the same with the child, actually. I, instead of imagining it as the child literally being killed, I'm seeing the child as you have to extract this child from all of this child's influences. Like you can't just change his behavior with, with positive reinforcement. Sometimes you have to take him out of the school. If that doesn't work, sometimes you have to move and you have to leave everything behind and let go of it. And as someone who left Los Angeles and moved to Israel with a one-way ticket and a suitcase, I can see this as you, you leave everything behind that is toxic, that is the Yetzer Hara, and you start over. It's like when people change their name when they're ill. They change their name so the Ayin Ra'a can't find them. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful. For me, very evocative imagery. I'm thinking again of my, my brother was like a, you know, a, a, a hoodlum. And I wouldn't talk about him so much, except that he's written a book about it. So it's all out there. But um, but yeah, I do remember feeling like, and yeah, Elle describes it so well, something like when you have a crisis situation with, uh, with, a, with a young person, sometimes it feels like extreme measures requires, get them out, get, just, you know, um, it's not something you could just, when it gets to a certain point, you don't just tolerate it. You have to, you know, uproot them and, and send them to Utah to one of these like, you know, retraining camp. Like, it seems like a crazy thing for a parent to do, but hey, it's less crazy than bringing your child to be um, stoned. But, but, 
but the reason that yeah, Elle's comments are helpful because at least we can understand what it means to think this is out of control. And if we don't stop this, this kid's gonna die or kill someone, right? Like there's some feeling like this danger, danger, danger. We have to completely uproot. And you feel the same thing of like, take those stones out of the wall, destroy this house if we need to, because there's a real danger here. Okay, good. All right, one more comment and then we'll take a look at the Talmud from Noah. Yeah, these sections are just interesting. I'm seeing it as they need to change the spiritual slash religious slash family paradigm that there's some bad juju or something in the house they built. Maybe that there's some rotten influences around it. So they need to remove the stones they, and building blocks they put there the family legacy, the religious legacy, et cetera. And then the next one, it's with the children. There's something going on maybe in their teachings of the child, maybe in how the child's understanding something. So that has to be shifted and redone and probably never telling, but just completely changing their paradigm. And lastly, they they may need to move out of the city because maybe the city is that influence that's causing it. So they have to start a new in a new place with new values, new morals, et cetera. Great. Okay. That's so helpful. Um, because in some ways, uh, Noah is making an obvious, an immediate connection, which is that if we assume, as so many of our commentators have, that sarat is a plague, that's the language you use, a plague, meaning you're being afflicted from God, probably because you sinned. Right? That's, that's a working assumption with a lot of the commentaries on sarat. You are afflicted with sarat. You know who gets sarat in the Torah? Do you know who actually gets sarat? Remember? Miriam. Miriam. Miriam gets Sarat. And why does she get Sarat? The, because she speaks ill of Moshe. That's the That begins the tradition that, oh, Sarat is caused by Lashon Ara, by evil speech. But yes, yeah, the idea is maybe this is a plague from God. You're being afflicted. And if that's the case, well, then the cases aren't so different from one another as, as they might first appear because they're all cases of sinful people that have gone too far and something dangerous has come from, from their, from their sins. Now that's, I, I appreciate that, that threading through because it either works or it, or, or, and this is part of what I'm, what I'm, what I, I want us to be thinking about. Are those three cases linked in that way where they're all consequences of sin or you could look at it differently. And I think initially the house that is plagued seems different from the other two cases because it, it seems like a kind of spooky natural phenomenon or an unknown cause. It's not a direct link to a certain kind of sin. There's nothing we we can identify. The priest doesn't come in and say, oh, say three Hail Marys and you'll be, no. The priest comes in and it's like just scraping at the wall. So what sin was it? And I think that's that question, that is exactly what I want us to be struggling with a little bit as we take a look at this this case in the Talmud, because the Talmud is going to link these three cases in a very particular way. And I guess um, 
the reason the, the reason that I bring this before you today is because I I want us to think about why is the plagued house in this series? Because the other two, as you'll soon see, the, the, the Talmud is, is, you can tell what the Talmud is doing with these two cases, and I'll just say it, and, and then we'll take a look. It seems clear that these other two cases are cases of, of, of rabbinic discomfort and subsequent like interpretation, interpreting their way out of discomfort. What do I mean by that? When the rabbi, this is like a famous case. What I'm about to show you in the Talmud is a famous, famous, famous case. One of the most famous examples of rabbinic interpretation, the, the power of rabbinic interpretation to, to subvert the Torah itself, okay? And the classic case of the rabbis writing a law out of existence is the case of Ben Sorer Umore, the, the, the wayward and defiant son. And the Talmud never says this, but most readers have assumed that what's going on here is that the rabbis looked at the case of the parents who brought their son to be killed and they just couldn't stand it. Most readers have assumed the rabbis looked at that and they said, this is crazy. We, this can't be, it cannot be. We cannot let this happen. And so take a look at how, I don't wanna to be too irreverent here, but I, I think a lot of people read this and would say, oh, the rabbis are just, they figured out a way to get rid of this. Okay, so, so take a look at Rabbi Yehuda's interpretation, okay? So we're gonna look at three cases, and, um, but the first one will give us, a, give, give us a, a, the, the basic sense of what's going on here, okay? So when I teach uh, law, I've, I've taught some, some Jewish law courses at law schools, and, and I wanna give an example of like, how does rabbinic um, legislation and interpretation work and how, how much power do the rabbis have? This is a case that I show them, okay? This is a, this is, this is a very, very important case. And, um, uh, you know, at this point, it seems like maybe we, we, we have, we're far afield of the plagued house, but we'll get back to it, don't worry, okay? So this is, this is the case of the wayward and defiant son as it appears in the Talmud. And there's a lot of kind of back and forth. What does it take? The rabbis, as, as is not uncommon, they list all the requirements for what it would take to get a, a rebellious son killed. And the requirements are quite um, particular and quite strict. That already is making it seem like it's gonna be pretty unusual for this case to be put to um, the test. But then take a look at Rabbi, what Rabbi Yehuda says, okay? This is the Talmud and Sanhedrin, and Rabbi Yehuda says the following thing. If his mother uh, was not identical to his father in voice, appearance, and height, he does not become a stubborn and rebellious son, meaning he isn't killed. Now, let me just repeat that. If his mother was not identical to his father in voice, appearance, and height, he does, he, the case doesn't move forward. So let's just stop for a minute. Just make sure we understand what's being said here. The mother and father, they come and they say that kill, kill our son. Okay, then that's the law. You got to do it. But only if they look alike and sound alike. What? That makes no sense. I mean, 
you know, how, how many, I mean, you know, couples start to kind of grow, grow together and look, but like sound alike. Okay. Well, here's the justification. And it's, it's like one of the wildest moments in all of the Talmud. Okay. Here's what they say. What is the reason for this? How, how can you possibly say this? The verse says, remember we saw this above, he does not listen to our voice. Now it should say our voices because it's two people. Let's just go look at that again. He does not listen to our voice. Should say two voices, but it says kolenu, our voice. So here we are again in the singular, which indicates that they both have the same voice. Okay, that's already an incredible move. The word in the Torah is voice. It has to be one voice. The voice has to sound like one voice. And so the mother and father have to be speaking and they have to have basically a similar vocal um, tone. And if they don't, well, then it, it, the case won't work. Now that's already, come, come on. Now already you should be thinking, this isn't, this doesn't make any sense. That, 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 are they serious? Or as I said, this is why so many of our, um, uh, you know, subsequent readers have assumed, oh no, they're not serious. They're doing this on purpose. They're getting rid, or at least Rabbi Yehuda is. And if you did, if you didn't think that already, take a look at the next line here. The next line is, um, and since we require they be identical in voice, we also require that they be identical in appearance and in height. Now that really doesn't make any sense. Okay. That doesn't work. But wait a minute. The Talmud almost seems aware of what it's doing. But according to Rabbi Yehuda's opinion, there has never been a stubborn and rebellious son, and then there never will be one. Now, this is a huge line in the Talmud. This is like a big take, if nothing else today, take this phrase and, and walk away with it. Lohaya there never was and there never in the future will be that that's what i teach in, in in when i when i have an opportunity to teach jewish law in law schools this is the case of that the law which never was and never will be this is this is the classic case of the rabbi saying yeah i know it's in the torah but it never happened it never will happen how do you get off saying that it's in the Torah. What do you do with that? And then they have a famous kind of rejoinder. It's almost cute, uh, but it's but it's also it's also radical. So what what do you mean? Why then was it written in the Torah? So that you may expound it. Let's change the expound is a funny word. So let so that you may study it and receive reward. Jerush v'kabel schar or interpret it, interpret it and receive reward. Almost like what we're doing right now. It's there to teach a lesson. It's there to be interpreted. It's there to be, who knows? Maybe it's there to be written out, okay? That's the case of the rebellious son in the Talmud, is that the requirements are so absurdly particular that it gets to the point where it can never happen. And, you know, of course they're saying, well, but it says so in the Torah. What do you mean? It says so in the Torah. It says, I'm sorry, it says so in the Torah, our voice, one voice. But it's like, doesn't really make any sense. Okay. All right. That's the case of the rebellious son. Now you have the basics. Now I just want to show you how the Talmud does the same thing for the condemned city. 
Now, before we do that, there's one last thing to take note of, which is then each of these three cases, Rabbi Yonatan comes along and he says, no, 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 I saw one and I sat at his grave. Okay, so every time you're going to see the exact same structure here, there never was and there never will be. Why was it written so that you can study it? And then no, no, Rabbi Yonatan said, no, 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 wait a minute. There was, there was, okay. So similarly, who was it that taught there never has been an idolatrous city and there never will be one? You know what, it, you know, when the Torah says we have to go and kill all of our brothers and sisters in, in a town? No, that never happened. Why then was it written in the Torah? So that you may expound it. Uh, interpret it, study it, and receive reward. Who was it that taught that? It was Rabbi Eliezer, because Rabbi Eliezer said, any city that has even one mezuzah cannot become an idolatrous city. A mezuzah, a little parchment on the door. Why? Because the verse says, and you shall gather the spoil into the midst of the open space of the city and shall burn it with fire. And since if there's a mezuzah there, it would be impossible to burn it. And they have a proof text for that, but that's good enough for us. If there's a there has to be one mezuzah in the city. And if there's one mezuzah in the city, one safer Torah in the city, one sacred writing in the city, you can't burn all the stuff in the city. And remember what it said in the case of the condemned city, that you have to take all of their, their stuff to the middle of the city and burn it. It says that. If you can't do that, you can't condemn the city. Okay? Like, you starting to feel what's going on here? Like, oh, yeah, no, that could never happen because of the mezuzah. It's like the whole law is now gone. The whole city is saved for one little mezuzah. Come on. Are they serious? Okay. So you have the Ben Sora and More. Are they serious? Do you really you have to speak in the same voice and look the same? That, that's impossible. No, 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 no. They say the point is we're just supposed to study this and study it out of existence and we'll receive our reward. Okay. Same thing with the condemned city. There's one little mezuzah. It's never going to happen. It never had happened. I mean, it's a wild thing that they're saying because they're not just saying. It's, it never happened. They're saying it never will, it cannot, we make it impossible for it to happen. Okay, so, and then of course, Rabbi Yonatan, right? Like he's, he's, he doesn't buy this line and we'll think a little bit about what he's up to, but he says, no, 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 I saw one and I sat in its ruins. There was a condemned city, okay? Now, you know what's coming next. And this, this whole class, I know, you know, it's, I, I think it's now obvious, this whole class is all just structured to ask one question. And the question is, what is the case of the plagued house doing here? Because one of these things doesn't look exactly like the other. So this is all like we're, we're arriving at our central uh, question here. We needed to do a lot of scaffolding to get there, but you, you know what's coming next. The plagued house. Was there ever a plagued house? What a weird, this, what, where is it? Well, who was it that taught that there never has been a plague afflicted house and there never will be one? Why then was it written in the Torah? So that you may expound it and receive reward. Now, it turns out it was Rabbi Elazar ben Rabbi Shimon. The reasoning here is so um, strained that it's almost hard to follow, but I'll just read it anyway, just so, because it is our, our after all, our topic for today, but just, Part of the point is how strange this reasoning is. Okay, Rabbi Yelazar ben Rabbi Shimon says, a house never becomes impure until a mark about the size of two split beans is seen in two stones in two walls that form a corner between them, the mark being about two split beans in, lip, in length and about one split bean in width. Okay, that's the, it has to be in the corner and it has to be this width. Why? Because the verse says, 
and he shall look at the leprous mark and behold, if the leprous mark be in the walls of the house in greenish or reddish depressions, which in sight are lower than the wall. In one part of the verse, it is written wall and another part of the verse, it is written walls. What wall is like two walls? You must say that this is a corner. So it had to be in a corner and it had to be a certain size in a corner if it isn't in the corner. Now, again, it's sort of like, first of all, it's, the whole thing seems ridiculous. And secondly, it's not, this isn't exactly a proof that it never happened. It just says, oh, come on. Never was that exact length in the corner. Come on, that never happened. It's just like the, the city without, why didn't the city, why does the city necessarily have a mezuzah? But you know, come on, come on. It never happened, it never happened. Okay, so, there it is, the case of the plagued house right there with the condemned city and the rebellious son. And this time it's other people, but just so you know, there are some final voices that say, no, no, no. There was Eliezer ben Reb Tzadok says there was a place in the area of Gaza and it was called the ruin of the quarantine. So maybe there was. And Rabbi Shimon, um, from the village of Akko said, no, I once went to the Galilee and I saw a place that was being marked off. And they said that plagued stones were cast there. Okay, so now we have two questions, uh, 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 but we're gonna get to the, the second one uh, in a bit. The, the second question is, what, what are these voices that are rallying to say, no, 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 these things did exist. But the main question, the question we've been building up to this whole time is, why is the plagued house there? What is it? We've talked what it might have about what it might have to do, how it might be related to these other two cases. But now that we see that the Talmud gives us three classic cases of laws in the Torah that never were applied. And you can see all in each of those cases, the rabbis kind of figured out a way that technically, that an almost absurd, through almost absurd logic, these cases can't be applied. But in the first two cases, it appears like the rabbis are pushing back against some kind of horrifying ethic that they cannot stomach. No way we should kill kids just because their parents can't handle them. No way we should, we should annihilate an entire city just because they've gone astray. But in the third case, the rabbis are saying this haunted house, this plagued house, it never happened. No way it ever happened. Just there never was one. So what's this house doing there? What is it? What does it mean to say this house never was and never ever will be? What is the significance of that statement when usually the never was and never will be is kind of like code for, we don't like this law, we're getting rid of it. But in this case, what's the discomfort? What are they struggling with? Why are they getting rid of the plagued house? Okay, so that's all to ask for our last five minutes to deal with that question. So let's see what Leah has to say about it. I don't think, I, I'm not sure this is going to directly answer, but this is my take on it. Um, there's a certain amount of irrationality that comes up in each of the cases. We have a visceral reaction to, oh no, the house is rotting. Oh no, this, I cannot tolerate this rebellious adolescent. Everybody in this place, they're, so horrible, they all should be annihilated. This is, I think, a very natural and irrational re reaction. So what we're offered is a diagnostic scale of deduction. It's almost medical. 
start with the most obvious cause first. Don't panic. It could just be poison ivy. Okay. X-ray doesn't work. Let's take a CT. CT scan still little. Okay. Let's go for an MRI. Finally, let's go for a PET scan. Okay. We got it. Then we move until we have all the, all the rational reasons and logic in place. We're not going to destroy anything. Excellent. Um, that's excellent, Leah. I, I just, I really, I think that comment cuts right to the heart of, of our analysis, because I think one way of dealing with this is to note that they are different cases. Remember, Noah kind of imagined, well, maybe they are similar in that they all deal with the outgrowth of sin in some ways, but the plagued house seems different. It just seems like, like I said, like a haunted house, super supernatural, surreal, kind of bizarre science fiction. Whereas the other two they seem like ethical dilemmas. But as Leah puts it, all these cases share a feeling of the bizarre, the, the irrational, whether it's the irrational coming out of these parents like you know manic state or the irrational feeling that we just have to destroy everybody in a city, they're just not worth living, or the case of this house, which is so, in other words, maybe the rabbis are dealing with two slightly different feelings. One is, oh, this is horrifying, we can't let this be. Another one is, what do you mean the house has a plague? That doesn't make any sense, that's bizarre. Is that real? Do we really believe in that stuff? Sort of different kinds of discomfort, but actually related in the sense that this simply is, is, is beyond the, the, the bounds of, of reason and, 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 and clear thinking. Something's wrong, let's diagnose, let's take it down a notch, let's make sure, how big was the, was the reddish streak. Okay. Like let's, you know, let's cool everything. What did the Torah actually say? It said one voice. So maybe actually we're not going to kill your kid. Let's just take everything down because these cases are all so bizarre that they lead to a kind of, a kind of mania. We're going to rip down your house. We're going to kill your kid. We're going to destroy the whole, this is too much. And in that sense, they are kind of related, um, uh, um, um, categories or they're in a related category that is okay. other thoughts i think leah did a great job other thoughts hmm. okay okay um in that case uh we'll we'll wrap up but i think that th this is this is an important um this is an important kind of of analysis because this is such an this is such a classic case in the talmud and we always talk about the 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 way, wayward and rebellious son. It's like, it's a hallmark case in the Talmud because it shows the rabbis, what did they say? Why is it there in the Torah? Drush v'kabel schar. Interpret it. Drush is like the, the rabbi's word for their method of interpretation. Interpret it and receive reward. And in their interpretation, the kind of the reward they get is, is that the law no longer applies. And it almost feels like they're saying, yeah, the law is here for you to write out of existence. There's something to be learned here. There's something important here. There's something we have to deal with, but let's not, though the Torah sounds like it's calling for death and destruction, let's not get carried away. Let's take it down a notch. Let's, uh, let's, let's, let's play with the words a little bit till we get to a place where we actually have a much more reasonable social order. Right, where uh, and 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 part of that 
is barring against kind of wanton destruction of human life. But part of that is also not getting um, so um, carried away with um, the plague and the uh, back to like Lovecraft, you know, oh, there's a there's a green streak in my house. It must be that there's poison toxic energy here. We're all gonna die. It's gonna corrupt us. Oh, careful, careful, careful. Let's, before we tear down the house, let's just, let's try to be reasonable. Let's try to be rational. And you know what? The Torah doesn't always strike us when we read it. It's so reasonable and rational. So that's part of what the rabbis are here to do is say, wait, wait, wait. How will we apply this? In some cases, it seems we won't apply at all, right? And so um, those cases are the, the wayward and rebellious son and the condemned city. Those seem to us, well, surely those are just so horrifying. But what do we do with a case like the haunted house? How do we process this? What do we, how do we, how do we legislate around? What, maybe the best way is to say, well, what was, was, and, you know, the Torah speaks about that, but we don't, we don't, we don't really, we don't really think that ever came to be. And then, and I said, there was another question to ask here and we don't have time to ask it, but we'll sort of leave this question hanging in there. What about these other voices in the Talmud that say, no, 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 this happened. This happened. I mean, why is it important for Rabbi Yonatan to say there was a kid that was killed in this way? There was a city that was burned down in this way. And these other voices saying there were houses that were torn apart. In other words, there are rabbinic voices that are uncomfortable with this kind of move. Like, what do you mean? You're just writing it out of existence. That's the Torah you're talking about. And if the Torah says that it happened, it happened. And if the Torah says that it has to happen, it sometimes did happen. Right? So you can see a little bit of a tension here between two schools of interpretation, one that sees something that is so disturbing in one way or another that it almost forces us to think about how to, how to get rid of it, and the other that says, no, wait a minute, no. Everything in the Torah has to have some real-world application, even the strangest things of all. Okay? All right, so that's a little tour through, uh, through three, three class, classic, but usually... Uh, Usually uh, we think of as unrelated cases. Okay, great to learn with you. I will see you next week. Going to be in the woods learning Torah. Love you all. And uh, see you next week. Shabbat shalom. Thank you. Shabbat shalom. Bye, everyone.